This is Regional Spotlight Middle East with Laura and Zainab. We're here today with Ibtiha from Campaign Against Arms Trade. We are here today with Ibtiha from Campaigns Against Arms Trade to talk about the arms trade between the UK and Saudi Arabia. This is actually a good timing to talk about this as the recent leaks that led to a reported investigation called Made in France from this close in April has revealed the implication of France's but also European countries' authorities in the arms trade between French arms industries and the Saudi regime. This is echoing back to similar activities happening in the UK, so we thought it would be very interesting to have a look at where we stand here in the UK. The war in Yemen started in 2015 and is opposing the Saudi-led coalition to the Houthi rebellion. Daily reports continue to bring evidence of the impact of the armed assaults on civilians and the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winner of the international reporting nomination was the work of journalists about the atrocities of the war. The UN has qualified this conflict as the worst humanitarian crisis with tens of thousands of deaths so far, of which 85,000 children, a famine putting at risk no less than 80% of the population according to the UN and numerous reported cases of torture. So I think it's important to mention the gravity of the situation of the ongoing conflict, considering that we are going to discuss the implication and the responsibility of the UK's government in the arms trade with the Saudi-led coalition. The UK is the second biggest supplier of military weapons to Saudi and represented 23% of the total exportation between 2013 and 2017. So Ibtiha, welcome to this episode of Regional Spotlight Middle East. Could you tell us a bit more about who you are and what is Campaigns Against Arms Trade? Sure. So I'm Ibtiha. I'm part of an organisation called Campaign Against Arms Trade. It's a small organisation that's been working um, on the global arms trade and trying to end it for decades now. And one of our biggest focuses at the moment is Saudi Arabia, because by far it is the biggest buyer and has been for decades of UK arms. I'm the university's coordinator at Campaign Against Arms Trade, so I look at how public institutions like universities are militarised spaces and how we can campaign to demilitarise them or attempt to. So seeing as you kind of look at how arms trade is an institutional thing, I came across a 2017 interview that a spokesperson for the campaign said that there's kind of a revolving door between government and defense ministers, uh, where you have defense ministers who will go and work for these arms trades companies. So it kind of indicates that there's a higher institutionalization of this and that there's almost a military industrial complex going on, which is like quite sinister. And how do you kind of go about breaking such a gargantuan task? The points that you alluded to are 100% right. There is a military industrial complex and this is very institutional. And also we should remember that a lot of the things that we're talking about all happen within legal and state apparatus. Well, when we say legal, that's questionable because I'm sure we'll go on to talk about like international humanitarian law, but as in within very questionable legal frameworks. I mean, we're talking about licences that the UK applies for um, in in exports. We're not talking about wishy-washy, corrupt. I mean, a lot of the stuff can be described as corrupt or a lot of people have argued that it has been, but we're talking about stuff that happens within state and legal apparatus. So this is a very institutional thing. I think the point that you allude to about, you know, is one that is very prevalent um, with the arms industry 
industry and political influence of the arms industry is really big in the government. I mean, we have a body in the civil service which has existed for decades, but under different names, the Department of International Trade, Defence and Security Organisation, which is literally there to promote, exists to promote arms export. It's kind of bewildering. I think that's staffed by about 150 people. So that's the job of people in the civil service to promote arms exports. And we see that with huge arms fairs. So in September, they will be hosted in the Excel Centre, one of the largest arms fairs in the world, where countries, representatives of countries, including Saudi Arabia, will be invited to shop, literally shop, for weapons um, and arms. So this is very institutional. The political influence is very real. And the example I gave you is one tiny example of how... Um, influential the arms industry is with government and and how basically both things are so embedded together. I think in terms of what you asked about how do we go about dismantling such a huge structure, I think part of that comes from understanding that this is a huge structure. This isn't something that is an isolated thing. This is something that is embedded in various structures of oppression. This is something that is a, is a physical manifestation of, of certain oppressions and also relies on those oppressions to continue. So for me personally, how, how I go trying to dismantle something as huge as that is trying to discredit it in a way, is trying to expose the arms industry, corporations and the links between them and the systems of oppression that I just talked about as clear as possible so then there's less of a, a way to refute it. There's less of a way to refute this really obviously wrong industry of death. It's really hard in a way to like keep yourself going when you're trying to dismantle such a huge thing. But I think part of refuting it and exposing this kind of horrible industry is realising that, in a sense, we collectively empower each other because we realise that these things don't represent us and these things end up being a call for us to fight collectively. Can we have a bit of a recap on the existing legislation in the UK regulating arms trade? Yeah. And especially with uh, countries involved in conflict. I mean, so we have an arms export committee and we, and like... There's a, a lot of the conversation around the arms trade is about how thorough legislation is when it comes to selling arms. But Saudi Arabia is and has been by far the biggest buyer of weapons of the UK. In terms of specific legislation and international humanitarian law, so recently we challenged the government on their specific legislation, which is that if there is a clear risk that these weapons might, and I like reiterate, might be used to violate international humanitarian law, then they cannot be sold. There's been numerous reports accounting violations of international humanitarian law. I mean, the Ministry of Defence is tracking 366 cases of these. So there is a law. It is not being adhered to. A lot of the stuff that's come out with the court case and with a lot of the campaigning is the hypocrisy behind it, right? Even even if we're going to use the standards of, the, of UK legislation or um, UN or international humanitarian law, then the UK is not adhering to it. Actually, you were talking about how the UK is tracking cases of use of those weapons in, uh, I guess, in an offensive way in Yemen. This was the case in... France. So Disclose mm. revealed and showed us how they actually found licensed bomb coming from Germany manufacturers or French manufacturers in Yemen. 
how did we find any proof that we used weapons in Yemen? So Mawatan Human Rights Watch. Mawatan is a, is a Yemeni group that works in human rights, registering the situation in Yemen and civilian deaths. Mwadana and Human Rights Watch both uh, recently published a report on UK-made cluster bombs being used in Yemen. There has been countless reports on the UK violating international humanitarian law. We've seen that with bombings of hospitals, of funerals. I still can't get my head around that, to be honest, like the bombing of a funeral. There's something really dark about that. Not that there isn't anything dark about bombing other civilian places, but just the sheer extent of the bombing that has taken place by Saudi, I think is indicative, but that alone isn't the reason. Like there has been reports and that report is one that people should have a look at if they'd like to find out more. But on the case of the 366 cases that the UK is tracking, so 79 of them are now being investigated apparently, but I should note that that isn't being investigated by the Ministry of Defence, that is being investigated by Saudi. How is Saudi investigating its own violations of international law and how is the UK trusting those investigations? And the answer to that is they aren't. It's something that we're never going to get a result for. We're never going to get clear, unbiased results from. So much overt information coming out from these Yemeni organizations. Where is it going wrong? Mm-hmm. What What's the line that has to be crossed in order for the UK to do something? I think this goes back to how we talk about the arms trade. A lot of us think of it, unfortunately, as an isolated thing and not something that is linked to a history and a modern history and a current present that is deeply entrenched in huge structural oppressions. There are structures that allow the arms trade to take place. It doesn't, you know, take place all by itself. And also we have a lot of the stuff that comes out from politicians, which I think is being refuted more commonly now. Jeremy Hunt recently wrote something about stopping the sales of arms to Saudi Arabia as morally bankrupt, which is so ridiculous. But it was a published piece and he talked about Britain's role in Yemen and in the region and its history and its values, which again reiterates this thing that I'm trying to allude to is that this is a very structural thing. We do not understand Britain and France's role, specifically the colonial role in the Middle East and specifically in Yemen. We can't like these things are a continuum of those policies, or not just those policies, those histories that for some reason we think that we have an authority to, you know, have a position in, on the Middle East, which is ridiculous, even by those superficial standards, because of the level of arming that the UK does to countries in the Middle East. I think two thirds of arms exports of the UK go to countries in the Middle East. And we've already seen these have been used to arm dictators like Gaddafi, Saddam. And there hasn't even been a fake superficial stance of like, we're trying to support one side because we truly believe in them. We saw it with Iraq and Saddam Hussein. The UK was arming Iran and Iraq in the war in the name of neutrality. It is literally a structure that is there to benefit corporations and government. Those things also can't, in our time, be separated because of how deeply linked corporations and government, especially the arms industry, there can be no reasoning behind any of the positions taken other than that this is for profit. Even for the defence argument, defending who? Who exactly is the UK defending by arming Saudi Arabia? The, the UK's relationship with Saudi Arabia is not a new one. It has been arming Saudi for decades and it has been arming them through different governments. We saw it in Thatcher's time, 
we saw it in John Major's time, we saw it in Tony Blair's time, we saw it in David Cameron and Vince Cable's time, we saw it, well, and Nick Clegg's in the coalition's time. But unfortunately, I don't think the arms trade is going to stop if we leave the European Union or stay. And in, in terms of the ATT, I'm not sure how much I'm convinced personally about this having such an effect because We've seen that the UK doesn't adhere to its own legislation. It doesn't adhere to the United Nations legislation. Can you tell us a bit more about international aid and the sending of weapons that are used to destroy this humanitarian aid? Actually, I think there was a report released recently about some of the aid um, not being actually sufficient or I think some of the stuff was out of date or something filled even that really silly silly argument that you know we're providing aid and therefore it's okay to bomb people even that on its really superficial level yeah it doesn't even hold up we, we keep seeing that in the way that the government even itself like officials have started to expose itself I think in was it 2017 before Michael Fallon resigned he urged members of the opposition to not criticise because it would make it harder to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia I mean you saw it recently with Trump I don't want to lose this $110 billion investment. So like part of it is, you know, this phase of trying to hide these atrocities is diminishing because we've all seen the truth and it's all been exposed. So now it's kind of become like a stage where everyone's just audacious enough to say the horrific stuff that they stand for. That piece by Jeremy Hunt about how it would be morally bankrupt to stop selling arms to Saudi is a really big indicator of that, I think. With this sense of audacity that is emerging within politicians, does it make your job any easier? I think it's, in a sense, we've reached that, I think. We've reached that level because a lot of us are working to expose the arms trade and the oppressions linked to it and the oppressions it's built on. And part of that is really powerful for us because we realise that we're not going to stand up for it and we'll collectively stand against it. In a way, it kind of doesn't make a difference because we've known what we've been fighting against and now it's just being stated it makes it easier in the sense that it cannot be refuted, even by people who who were accepting previous arguments that were really unacceptable. <laughs> the most inspiring or the, one of the things that I attach myself to most when I think about campaigning against the arms trade is the collective power that we all realise that these ministers aren't representing us. These officials are saying horrendous things and doing stuff in our name. And it isn't just politicians and, and governments. It, it literally plays a role in every part of society. And like I think that's where we gain that momentum, realising that this militarisation and the, this arms trade, is, it affects us all and it's in every single space, which is really sad, but also really empowering because it means that we have a role in resisting that. Yes, you did have, um, you did start a legal action against the government licensing yeah. uh, export of military equipment to Saudi Arabia in 2017. Yeah. It was rejected by um, yeah. the High Court, but you are now, you actually just had a hearing for yeah. an appeal. So yeah. you're now waiting for the judgment. Yeah. How are you hoping this judicial review will change anything in terms of exportations? Firstly, it would mean that the UK would stop would put a halt to its arms sales to Saudi, which would be a huge thing in terms of um, what is going on right now in Yemen. And I think we saw that in the report. We saw the extent of the UK and also other NATO countries being so, so, so embedded in the, the conflict in Yemen. I think on a different 
um, level. So even if there was a halt to even even considering and taking into account the halt to arms sales, if, if we win the appeal, it will be a really, really, really big win for democracy, for people fighting for a, a transparent legislation that is being adhered to, right? It will be a fight against corporations, which we've seen time and time again has been one a, a really difficult fight to fight. I think in a way, it will be something that is motivational for a lot of people campaigning on a lot of issues that might seem different, but are super related. And that is holding a corporation and holding government to account. And we hardly ever see this being done. So if you remove corporations and government, that kind of link, kind of going back to where your specialty lies, what about corporations and their links to universities? The role of corporations, it isn't just in government. Their role in government means that both government and corporations are influential in all in so many spaces in society. So when we talk about corporations in universities and the militarization of universities, so we see that in investments, we see that with universities investing millions and millions of pounds in arms companies, in fossil fuel companies. For example, I think one of the colleges, only one we're only talking about one college. One college at Cambridge has an investment fund of over £500 million, which has investments in the world's largest arms companies, fossil fuel companies, has investments in BP, the Dakota Access Pipeline, Arconic, which is the company responsible for the cladding at Grenfell. Literally, it is invested in all these horrific corporations that we have to realise are really deeply linked with each other. If we talk about Arconic, so the company responsible for the cladding at Grenfell, Arconic also supplies materials for F-35s. So the link is not just in the fact that, you know, the government can afford to bomb and kill and massacre and play a role in that of other people's, but it does that in its, on its own ground as well. That is through corporations like Arconic and what we saw in 2017 in Grenfell. Investments is only one tiny bit of how universities are militarised. Universities receive so much research funding from arms companies, especially departments like engineering departments. We have like Sheffield, which has like an advanced manufacturing centre, work, which works with BAE systems to literally manufacture bullets. We have departments across the country being literally bought by arms companies and what that literally means is that those students can only contribute their time and their resources and their knowledge to um, developing technologies of war which means that when they graduate that's all that they can contribute to which means that we're in a cycle of just developing technologies of war innovation that creativity that knowledge is never used for anything to benefit society and that's what i mean when i mean this is deeply entrenched in all parts of society and this is deeply entrenched in different structures of oppression because these students that alternative is is wiped out by the literal buying of departments which is literally a product of neoliberalism liberalism really that's what that's what we're seeing so a lot of the discussion around uh, research nowadays has been about freedom of speech and freedom of thought we never talk about this literal suppression of freedom of thought by buying i want to say buying the minds of people because that's all that those students can end up contributing to so could you almost say that there is a sense of naiveness amongst students and these corporations are preying on them because these are students that are on the precipice of entering the workforce. They're eager to find a job, so they're kind of easy targets. I wouldn't personally say it's naiveness and I wouldn't say it's only about students. I'd say actually a lot of the stuff is hidden. A lot of the stuff is hard to get that information. If you do a freedom of information request, I mean, I know a lot of people that have submitted freedom, well, I've, I've seen a lot of attempts 
a freedom of information request being submitted to SOAS and they haven't been answered. Institutions are supposed to be places where, you know, freedom of thought thrives and like there's debate and discussion and creativity is allowed to flourish and there are no influences. The reality is universities are, are essentially businesses and they profit corporations and they do this in, in ways that are hidden from students. And then students maybe in their second, third, fourth year, or like once if they're involved in political campaigning, realise, wait a minute, I, I have to pay £9,000 a year and it's going to be spent on bombing people, say, for example, from my own country, from my home country. How does that work? And morally, it doesn't work. <laughs> so I kind of just wanted to ask, well, we know that journalism is what we're hearing from Yemen has been very closed off. It's very hard to get access. So what is the severity of the situation? I think all the reports have shown the sheer horror um, and scale of this disaster. I mean, the United Nations has called it worst humanitarian catastrophe. A, a report recently showed that 85,000 children have, under the age of five, have starved to death as a result of the war. That's we're just talking about children that have starved to death. Two and a half million people have been displaced. And the really sad thing about all of this is that, like, these are not just numbers. There are lives and loves and hopes and dreams attached to these people. And I think a big part of the discourse around Yemen has meant that we've ended up dehumanising the situation even more. And even in the report that we talked about earlier, one of the things that was talked about was like the Saudi jets, I think, and like how they were being used, how, how Saudi's fighting was meeting certain standards. And it's like we've reached a really, really, really low bar that this is what we're discussing, this is what we're finding shocking, rather than the deaths and the starvation and the catastrophe and the destruction that has affected and terrorised millions of people. This isn't just about Saudi's role in Yemen, although that alone deserves all the attention. How can we contribute to CAT's campaigning? I think part of it is thinking beyond CAT, right? Like thinking about the arms trade, like this isn't about campaign against the arms trade. This is about how we want the future of our society to be. And obviously global, ending the global arms trade is a huge thing, but something that we should work towards because not only because of the horrific nature of this industry of death, but because of the horrific oppressions that this thrives on, which is, like I've tried to mention, like so, so related. Recently, we did um, an action at the British Museum um, with BP or not BP um, and a few organisers, which was basically about um, the Iraq war and how BP had lobbied the government months before the invasion took place, basically on the prospects of oil in Iraq and what that meant today for people fighting for water in one of the richest places in terms of oil in the world and how that's really linked to war, how before we'd seen arms companies profit of the death of Iraqis and now it was oil companies lobbying for war, which obviously arms companies will then profit from to not only destroy life, but to destroy the environment and to destroy, in, in a lot of cases, community as well. I think this is about realising that these things are all interconnected. I, I, I keep wanting to reiterate this because we don't seem to see how the arms trade is part of all of the different oppressions that a lot of us are trying to fight. Yeah, and how it manifests those oppressions. I think there are a lot of ways people can get involved. Understanding this is a big step before 
thinking about how our, our spaces are militarized. So then when we do when we do try and work on it, we have a realistic view of what we're trying to do. So for university students, there's a thing about thinking about how your university is militarized. Where is your university investing its money? Where is your university um, getting its research funding from? How are your university staff being paid? How are your university um, PhD students, your scholarships, your grants, how are they being funded? Thinking about your curriculum and how is it militarised? As an example, the university is a militarised space. We have schools now. We have science fairs that are apparently about encouraging women in STEM and girls in STEM for nine-year-olds being funded by arms companies. And that's the. And then it, you give prizes to those. Exactly. Kids. And, and and the issue is there is is if we don't have that deep understanding of what the arms trade is and how it is embedded, then people end up falling for those trips of like. What a win for feminists for teaching nine-year-old kids how to do science while bombing 70% women in, in, in a country like Yemen. Or what a win for feminism when we teach nine-year-old kids how to do science. and We get rid of whole universities. Yeah, or like we, we literally, I think the majority of those dying um, end up being women and killing black and brown women, whether it be abroad or whether it be literally on our own ground. Today, the, there was the BAE AGM. So BAE Systems is one of the world's largest arms companies. And so a few of us went to the AGM to question the BA systems on its terror. The, the beginning of their presentation was about protecting children, which is so ironic. How are you even trying to play that card when you're literally bombing children? There will be actions like the BAE AGM where we encourage people to come and like question. But we also have one of our biggest things is DICE, which is DSEI, which is one of the world's largest arms fairs, which is happening in the Excel Centre in September. And we've already started to organise for that. So that will be a week of us resisting all the tanks, all the weapons coming through to the Excel Centre. And we'll have different days dedicated for different things. So one day will be... Um, for Stop Arming Israel. One day will be about borders, migration, the arms trade. One day will be Conference at the Gates, which is normally about how we take our academia and practice it rather than just talk about it within our classroom walls um, and how it is that we, you know, really embody and, like, take action um, rather than just have those discussions within our seminars. Yeah, and a lot of that, I think, will also one day will be dedicated to to local democracy and how this government can afford to host an arms fair, can afford to put loads of police to protect this arms fair, which I think just is something worth taking a moment to think about, about the role of the police in this, the fact that there is no shame shying away from how this government can afford all of that but cannot afford to house its citizens is moving away from providing free healthcare, is cutting funding for youth clubs and is cutting funding for schools where people are talking about having um, less time in schools because there isn't enough funding for that. How is it that all of these things that are basics of a society are being cut away from in order to provide for an industry of death that is harming people across the world. So that is something that I would really encourage if anyone is interested to come along to and to start organising. So yeah, that's a big thing to watch out for, Dicey 2019. Ibtahal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. And thank you for listening to Regional Spotlight Middle East on SOAS Radio. And if you would like to uh, get involved in the campaign against arm trade, make sure to follow them on Facebook and Twitter. And if you would like more updates from radio, make sure to follow us at SOAS Radio on Facebook and Twitter. For more information about Campaign Against Arms Trade, to support them, 
donate or follow the Evans, please check the Campaign Against Arms Trade website at caat.org.uk. To know more about disarming universities, check the website catunis.net, c-a-a-t-u-n-i-s.net. To know more about the leak of classified French Defence Ministry documents revealing details of the massive use of French-made weapons in the ongoing four-year-old war in Yemen, check the website madeinfrance.disclose.ngo. Information about consolidated EU and national arms export licensing criteria can be found on publications.parliament.uk. Public information about the UK arms exports are available on researchbriefings.parliament.uk.